Today's reading begins on page 184. Rowan. The fact that Geneva thought she could tell a body had been brown-skinned from its bare skull messed with my head. My first reaction was to assume she was full of shit. I mean, how could you possibly tell skin color from bones? Then I remembered the glob of hair I'd pulled off the skeleton and figured maybe there had still been some skin on it. But when I asked, Geneva assured me that the matted gnarl had been pure, unadulterated, flesh-free human hair. I know he was black from his skull, she said. My internal you're-a-racist radar pinged like crazy and I started hitting her, hating her just a little bit. She didn't seem to notice. Then again, when it came to the living, Geneva didn't notice much. Skull morphology is influenced by the environment a population evolves in, she said. I can evaluate discrete skill, skull characteristics and match them up with the typical profiles for geographically distinct human groups. Translation, black people's skulls are different from white people's skulls. And she didn't stop explaining there. For example, eye orbits tend to be sloped in people with European ancestry, rounded in American Indian descendants, and rectangular in groups from sub-Saharan Africa. Ping! And nasal openings evolved high and narrow in Europeans, heart-shaped at the base in Native Americans, and wider in dark-skinned Africans. Ping, ping, ping! But even though what Geneva said had rubbed me wrong in all kinds of ways, I hadn't had any trouble accepting what creaky old Mrs. Manos taught me in ninth grade bio, that the closer your ancestor lived to the equator, the more likely you were to have dark skin. Melanin protects you from ultraviolet radiation. More you be at the equator, more melanin. It was evolution. It made sense. So why was it hard to accept that there might be other differences, ones that ran deeper than skin? I've got some ideas about that now, but when I walked out of the back house that afternoon, all I knew was that I felt dirty. And since mom keeps the thermostat pegged at 67 so she can wear sweaters all summer, a long, hot shower in the house feels good, even if it's 100 degrees outside. My shower, by the way, has four spray nozzles and an overhead rainfall faucet and is amazing. I sit underneath it a long, long time, steaming away the tension in my shoulders, washing my hair slowly. I rub shampoo over the bumps and ridges of my skull, wondering what it would look like after I died and all the skin and fat and muscle were gone. I trace the bones of my face, the ridges at the tops of my eye sockets, my cheekbones, my jaw. Water cascaded over the brown of my hands, the pinks of my nails, splashing onto the white shower tiles at my feet. If Geneva had my skeleton on a slab in front of her, what would she see? The white ancestors on dad's side who left Germany and Ireland for greener American pastures? Or the black men and women from moms who had been dragged across the ocean in chains and worked to death in Alabama cotton fields? To be fair, Geneva made a point of telling me things got a lot more complicated after people from different areas started intermarrying. But anti-mitigation laws in Oklahoma made it illegal for blacks to marry whites all the way up to 1967, which meant there were a lot fewer mixed-race kids in the 1920s than there are now. Skull morphology is getting less and less distinct, she said, but the person in your back house died around 1921, and to me, his skull features indicate that he was black. I stayed in the shower until my fingers pruned and my skin felt raw trying to sort out how I felt. In the end, I gave up and decided Geneva could believe whatever she wanted to. Black or white, the man buried in our back house had been smashed in the back of the head with a brick. Knowing he was black might help James and me figure out who he was, 
but in the end, murder was murder. No matter what his skin color, the dead man deserved to have his killer found. He deserved justice. It turned out mom was actually kind of proud when I told her about the clinic. I'm on Jackson's board of directors, she said, and Marguerite Woods and I graduated from Booker T together. She was tearing lettuce for a salad. Dad was grilling steaks on the back porch. You know who it was named for, she said. I didn't. A.C. Jackson. He was one of the best surgeons in the country, black or white. At least he was until white men shot him down in his own front yard during the riot. He came out of the house and they ordered him to unarmed hands in the air and they shot him dead. Just a side note, this is actually a true story. This is research-based. Just because he was black or because he was a doctor, I asked. She wiped her hands on the Mother's Day apron I'd finger-painted for her in first grade. No one knows if they singled him out or if they even know who he was. No one knows anything for sure about the riot except that Greenwood burned to ashes. She traced the outline of a thumbprint flower. Even though your great-great-uncle on my side disappeared that night, my mother didn't hear about him or the riot until she was in her 40s. Mom never talked about her family. I wanted her to keep going, but she stopped and asked me to get carrots from the fridge. She took a sip of wine and started breaking down a yellow pepper. Her knife pattered quick and hard against the cutting board. Mom? Nothing. Why? The knife stopped. Why don't we know more about that night, or why didn't your grandmother hear about it for so long? Both. She started chopping again, slowly, with movements as tight and precise as her voice. I don't know, she said. Mom always had answers, especially to the hard questions. I didn't like how carefully she measured her words or how she kept looking at the neat pile of pepper slices ahead of me. I wanted her to pull her shoulders back, lift her chin, and force everything to make sense. I don't need a perfect answer, I said. She finished the pepper and leaned her hips against the sink. It's history, Ro, the messy kind, where truth gets stretched out over thousands of unwritten stories. We don't know how many people died or even if we should call it a race riot. Riot is convenient. It's what most people use, but it isn't right. I leaned onto my elbows. Why? Because when people hear the word riot, white people, I mean, they picture black people running crazy in the streets, looting stores and homes and burning things. That wasn't what happened in Greenwood. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying black folks weren't angrier that none of them fought back, but it was white folks who rioted that night. They looted Greenwood, then burned it to the ground. Mom's voice stayed even, but she was squeezing the knife handle so hard the tendons stood out in the backs of her hands, and the vein in her neck, the one I've always used to tell how much trouble I was in, looked ready to burst. What's the right word? I asked. Before she could answer, Dad came inside with a platter of grilled zucchini. Five minutes on the steaks, he said, giving Mom and me this look like he knew exactly what he'd walked in on. He squeezed my shoulder, smiled at Mom, and went back outside. Mom started on the cucumber. I don't know what the right word is, she said. Some people say massacre, but to me that implies wholesale slaughter. It wasn't like that. Plenty of folks lived and had to rebuild their lives from scratch. She stopped cutting and stared down at the board. Greenwood burned because white folks, not all of them, mind you, but plenty, wanted to clear the bad out of Tulsa. To them, that meant any black man, woman, or child with the audacity to believe they deserved as much dignity and respect as a white person. Only those white folks failed because in the end, their survivors went right back and rebuilt what had been theirs from the start. I never heard my mother use the N-word. It made my lungs feel too small. 
She saw in her face soften. Your father and I had done our best to make things easier for you, she said, and maybe that was a mistake, but we wanted you to fill up on good things before you had to face the bad. I tried to tell her that I wasn't as, na as naive as she thought, that I knew what code words like thug and uppity and urban really meant, and that I saw the look some people gave me when they thought I wasn't watching. Mom closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. I know, she said, I do, but there is so much you haven't learned yet, Rowan. And as much as I wish I could protect you forever, I can't. So I'm glad you're working at the Jackson Clinic and asking questions. It's time. Dad whistled outside, making as much noise as he could, getting the lid on the grill and closing the grate to shut the fire down. Mom glanced toward the racket and smiled. There are things your father will never understand the way you and I do. Things he can't understand, but he tries and I love him. I love you too, so very much. She smiled and the strength I needed was there. Deeper even, as if the roots she used to anchor our family had spread wider and sunk further as we talked. You're growing up fast, she said, and that's how it should be. Just please know this. I leaned closer, wishing the counter wasn't between us. The lives that ended that night mattered. It was a mistake for this city to try to forget, and it's an even bigger one to pretend everything's fine now. Black men and women are dying today for the same reasons they did in 1921, and we have to call that out, Rowan, every single time. Part two, you have to make your peace with the chaos, but you cannot lie. Tanishi Coates. William, I wasn't in Tulsa the day Sarah Page screamed. It being Memorial Day Monday, Pop didn't open the shop. He was relaxed at breakfast that morning, saying how he might start teaching me to keep accounts once school let out. I've seen worse instincts in years when it comes to customers, he said. We might as well let that stubborn head of yours have a go at managing sums. Mama smiled over her biscuits and gravy, and I basked in the lukewarm glow of Pop's praise, trying not to dwell on the fact that my tenure at the shop would apparently continue through the summer. After that, the three of us drove by the new house to check on its progress. The workers had installed windows in the main building and put red tile roofs on it in the quarters both, and that made Mama and Pop so happy that our long drive up to Pahuska was actually pleasant. First thing we did when we got to town was lay flowers on the graves of Mama's mother and brother. Then we headed off to visit Mama's cousins, Margaret and Mary, who lived next door to each other on a street of grand houses built with Osage oil money. They had six children between them, and every single one made me push them about in their pedal cars. It was a good day, the kind that made you remember there's more to the world than just the town you live in. I didn't hear about Sarah Page the next morning, either, for Pop carried his newspaper with him into the parlor while he and Mom engaged in early morning negotiations over whether or not I could attend the junior-senior powwow. Pop considered school festivals a frivolous waste of time and felt I should spend my day off of school working at the shop. Mama was of a different mind, and in the end, she came out of the parlor with a shine in her eye that told me who'd won. She gave me $15, too, which was a princely enough sum, and said I should get to work half an hour early. I promised quick, then sprinted up Boston Avenue to catch the dime trolley to Sand Springs with the rest of my classmates. Only there was no sign of Cleet. Not then, not for half an hour after he arrived at the park. That's when he pulled up in his daddy's Cadillac. Eunice at his side. Right out of the gate, he'd spent a stack of dimes trying to win her a teddy bear at the ring toss. I figured he was just about bankrupted himself winning that thing. 
Afterwards, she fussed and cooed and pretended to feed it boiled peanuts, looking so much like a normal girl that you'd never guess her secret. And Cleet, he made a great show of ignoring me, parading around like a the cock of the walk so that I got fed up with the spectacle of it and caught the first train back after lunch. It was better that way, seeing how sore tempted I was to tell all our classmates it wasn't just the teddy bear Cleet had paid too much for. Besides, it was Tuesday, Ruby Day, and since Joseph had paid all but the $2.50 finance fee on the Victrola and was set to receive it Friday evening, I was worried her visit that afternoon might be her last. So it wasn't until I stepped off the train in Tulsa that I first heard a paper boy on a platform hollering, Negro attacks white woman, read all about it, which worried me all the way to the shop. I knew, of course, that he couldn't have been talking about Clarence and Addie for the two-knock incident was old news. Besides, Clarence's death hadn't warranted so much as a mention when it occurred, but the newsies' cry nodded up my mind nonetheless, distracting me so bad that I didn't notice Vernon Fish standing just inside the shop door until I'd heard him near run him over. He was in rare form, waving a copy of the Tribune about thundering on with fire and brimstone in his voice. Hanging's too good for criminals like that, Roland boy, and me and the fellows are going to fix him good. Want to be part of it, half-breed? Then an a look as evil as any I'd seen come into his eyes, and his hand headed Mabel's grip in his holster. Gonna neuter him first, let him dance a while over a bonfire. Mark my words, we'll make that boy Vegas for the noose. My innards shriveled as he spoke, thought about how Ruby was likely on her way to visit, and though I'd always been irregular in my prayers, I set about asking God right then and there to keep that little girl safe. Maybe it was the sight of me standing mute, or maybe it was just manners, but Pop got me out of Vernon's crosshairs by saying, Why don't you fetch Mr. F Fish? Jay, shh, I'm recording something. Be quiet. Sorry, guys. Um, Why don't you fetch Mr. Fish a stool from the back, William? I practically sprinted to the storeroom. Ruby, I whispered once the door closed behind me. You hear? When no response came, I pushed open the alley door and said her name again. After that, I checked to make sure neither Pop nor Vernon had followed me back, and when I was certain they hadn't, said in the loudest whisper I dared, Go home, Ruby, it's not safe here. Then I went inside, locked the door behind me, and made ready to face Vernon Fish. Everything you need to know is right there, half-breed. Read for yourself. Vernon jabbed his finger into the bottom right corner of the Tribune and smacked it down on the counter in front of me. Nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator. A Negro delivery boy who gave his name to the public as Diamond Dick, but who has been identified as Dick Rowland, was arrested on South Greenwood Avenue this morning by officers Carmichael and Pack, charged with attempting to assault the 17-year-old white elevator girl in the Drexel building early yesterday. He will be tried in municipal court this afternoon on a stage charge. The girl said she noticed the Negro a few minutes before the attempted assault, looking up and down the hallway on the third floor of the Drexel building, as if to see if anyone, as if to see if there was anyone in sight, but thought nothing of it at the time. A few minutes later, he entered the elevator. She claimed and attacked her, scratching her hands and face and tearing her clothes. Her screams brought a clerk from Renberg's store to her assistance when the Negro fled. He was captured and identified this morning both by the girl and the clerk, police say. Tenants of the Drexel building say that the girl is an orphan who works as an elevator operator to pay her way through business college. It didn't sound good, I'll admit, but Pop surprised me, saying, I know that boy. He doesn't seem the type. 
which set Vernon to sputtering how there was no such thing as a trustworthy Negro, and who was Pop to question, question the paper. Pop said, I'm not saying it isn't true, Vernon. It just surprises me. The boys shined my shoe more than one occasion and seemed the quiet type. Did a fine job, too, and I never once heard anyone call him Diamond Dick. Well, then you're a bigger fool than I thought, Vernon said. Flecks his spittle had gathered at the corners of his mouth. Most of them know enough to hide their true nature, but all you have to do is look in their eyes to see it. They'll smile and nod, scheming all the while to take our women and everything we got. The only good Negro is a dead Negro, Stanley. And me and the boys are going to make sure Dick Rowland's good as gold before the night's through. Pop cleared his throat and pushed the paper back across the counter. Vernon swiped it up and stuffed it under his arm, said, I'm meeting up with the boys to discuss this situation. You coming? He waited, standing so still I could hear the breath coming and going from all three of us. It just about killed me, that quiet, until finally Pop smoothed his mustache with his fingertips, saying, Not just now, Vernon. I can't leave William here alone. Vernon's lip parted, but his teeth stayed clenched. Close the damn shop and bring him, he said. Pop shook his head and said he couldn't do that. Vernon's face flushed deep red. His lips went white. You know, Stanley, he said, getting up to leave, the surest way to protect your business is to come with us and clear that nest of savages out of Greenwood. If you don't, they'll be coming for everything you've got. That notion seemed to unsettle Pop, but he held his ground all the same. Vernon stuck his smoldering cigar between his teeth and said in a voice full of ash and gravel, at least your son has spine enough to stand up to that boy in the speakeasy. Must be he gets it from your squaw. Then Vernon walked out and Pop came from behind the counter, fists clenched so tight it looked as if his knuckle bones might pop through the skin. Stop talking. And he stared out the window, looking up and down a street quiet as a cemetery at dawn. They won't be taking anything. Not with ten whites for every Negro in Greenwood, he said, so soft that I couldn't tell if I should respond or keep hushed. I coughed into my ham. Pop gave a start like he'd forgotten I was there. Don't you have work to do? He snapped. And I said yes, and I yes sirred him and hopped to, making for the storeroom as fast as I could, grateful for once that my mop and bucket awaited. Soon as I got to the storeroom, I opened the back door wide, propped it open with a brick, and started sweeping. It was usually the part of the job I was slowest at, there being no ammonia involved. But that afternoon, I felt like a melancholy toy wound too tight, pushing dust ahead of me in short, choppy thrust. The physical movement was soothing, though, enough that I swept the whole place twice. And still, there was no sign of Ruby. So I sloshed out a measure of ammonia and filled the rest of the bucket with water from the spigot out back. My eyes went bleary and my lungs squeezed tight as I mopped, but that was nothing compared to the way the hate in Vernon's words chewed at my insides. I mopped the hell out of that floor, let me tell you, sweating and thinking about Clarence Banks and how even if Dick Rowland had done wrong by that girl in the elevator, a judge should decide his fate, not a lynch mob of Vernon Fishes. Long after there was no dirt left to scrub, I went out back and squatted down to rinse the bucket at the spigot. Cool water spilled over my arms. I cupped the, my palms and splashed some over my head, closing my eyes against the drips. You baptizing yourself, Will Tillman? Ruby giggled and surprised me so bad that I tripped backwards onto the ground and my heart lightened at the sight of her, then went heavy as lead when I remembered our circumstances. I put my finger to my lips to shush her and fumbled about trying to stand. Ruby giggled harder. I mean it, I said. Something bad's happening and you need to get home quick. Her giggle quieted. I know, she said. 
Pop's voice came through the stateroom door and then Vernon's. It made me sick at my stomach knowing that he'd return. Both of them were close, like they could come through the back room and door any minute. Go home, Ruby, I pleaded. There's a crazy man up front if you don't and I you don't know what he'd do if he caught you. She looked into me with her deep brown eyes and said course I do, Will. Same thing they're going to try to do that man in the jailhouse. Which made me feel sick all over again as I realized that Ruby knew better than me what was going on. She always had. The storeroom doorknob turned. Pop and Vernon were coming. Get out of here! I all but begged. Ruby frowned, serious like her brother, then let loose a hillian's grill. Grin. I'd come to, lo- to love so well. Ain't nobody going to catch me, Will, she whispered. Then Pop and Vernon were in the stairwell room, and Ruby was gone. We ate an early supper that night, for Pop had decided to join the crowd gathering in front of the courthouse. He ate fast, gulping down his pie and coffee before Mama and me finished our trout. Eat your meal, Pop said, and he wiped his mouth off, adding, and remember what I told you. Mama cleared her throat. Will's a good boy, she said. I only wish he'd reconsider and stay home with us. But Pop said he was obligated to go see what was what downtown after all the last sheriff had let a band of vigilantes walk out of the jailhouse with a murder suspect in their possession they'd driven him out to the country and lynched him pop reminded us and he'd been white besides there were rumors of plenty that armed negroes up in little africa were gathering in the streets planning god knew what and such a thing could not stand only from what I'd heard, Tulsa's new sheriff was tough as nails and twice as sharp, making it unlikely he'd require the assistance of a shopkeep like my father. But Pop had made up his mind to go, and there was no persuading him otherwise. After Pop left, Angelina cleared the table, and Mama asked me to accompany her to the parlor to help win- wind yarn. All year long, she made caps for poor babies and orphans. Pop used to complain about the cost of it every time Mama pulled out her needles. And one evening a few months prior, he said something to the effect that it wasn't up to him to put a hat on the head of every squalling ragamuffin in Tulsa. That time, Mama's eyes never lifted and her hands never slowed in their work as she responded, I'm quite certain it's not Stanley, which is why the yarn money comes from my own income, same as the payments we're making on the fine new house you wanted. That ended Pop's complaints right then and there and showed me a side of my mother I rarely saw. For though she was the quiet sort, her words had bite and heft when she wanted them to. Quit fidgeting, she said in the parlor. I was perched on her footstool, hands caught up in the length of soft blue yarn she was winding into a ball. I mumbled I was sorry. Mama smiled. And that was all that passed between us as she wound one skein of yarn in another. Finally, on the third, she asked, would I like a cup of tea? Jittery as I was over the events of the day, I said I would. Mama called Angelina in and asked her to fetch us each a cup. And when Angelina set the china service down on the side table, Mama asked if her son's family was still living in the Negro quarter. Now, Angelina might have been getting on in years, but there was always a hum about her, an energy. That night, though, it was quiet. Yes, am she whispered. How many are there? Mama asked. Five, Angelina replied. Samuel, his wife, and their three boys. Mama pondered then that then said, I've been thinking about the violence in Chicago a few years back, how a riot broke out after those white men threw stones at that poor Negro boy in the lake until he drowned. Have you enough room in your quarters to invite your kin down for the night? Angelina brightened and faded all over again. Might be Miss Catherine, but they haven't a telephone. 
Mama dropped the half-wound ball of yarn onto her skirt, picked up her cup and saucer, and took two ladylike sips. The china barely clinked when she set it down. She motioned for me to give her a looped yarn, saying, I'll take that, William. Angelina, would you be so kind to ride along with William and show him where your family lives? That put the st starch back in Angelina's collar and quick. But me? Well, my drop jaw dropped so fast and so low I near had to scrape it off the floor then mama reached into her pocket and pulled out the truck key and gave it to me saying I trust your father's driving lesson was sufficient to get you safely to Greenwood and back I nodded yes even though it wasn't true good mama said and she took five crisp new ten dollar bills from her knitting bags for emergencies she said handing them to me be back by sundown the whistle from the Midland Valley Express came loud through the open parlor window. Mama set to winding the yarn herself. Angelina made for the truck. And me? I did exactly as Mama had bid. So just a little note about these readings is to think about how historical, how historical fiction evolves and relies from the past and on the past. So... Jennifer Latham had done research, which inspired this story. So now as we're getting into the parts with the massacre, we're starting to lean in more on historical accounts and evidence of what happened. And the um, news article that's in this chapter, previous chapter with William, was a real news article that ran the day after the alleged assault. So if you think about this, I want you to think about how the media can impact the perception of reality. And even then, we also have to remember that the media's goal sometimes is to sell. So they're selling information. They have to make it sensational. They need ratings. They, they need to review what's going on. But when do we hold people responsible for manipulating the media for other purposes? When should we say that things should remain neutral? When can things have a positive spin? When can things have a negative spin? Is that the same as censorship? Who should decide? These are things that I want you to think about as we travel through the next few chapters of this book.